Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And now for an exploding interview. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome back to the Exploding Podcast. I am your host, Rob, and joining me tonight is Drexy. Hello, Drexy. Hey, Rob. How's it going? It's going well, man. So tonight we have two special guests, not just one, but two. I'll start off with introducing Derek Paxson. He is the Vice President of Stardock Operations and the Lead Designer of Galactic Civilizations 4. Welcome to the show, Derek. Hello, and thank you for having me. Glad to have you. And we have, for the first time, we have Henry, who's the Community Lead for Stardock. Welcome, Henry. Hi. Hi. So cheery. I like it. <laughs> All right. He's bringing up the pep. I like it. You know, both of you are. That's great. So we're here to talk to I talk about Galactic Civilizations 4, of course. And, you know, it's I think it's kind of nearing its like initial development phase. I mean, based on kind of your progress and the version numbers and all. I mean, I don't know. I, maybe I can ask you that here in a minute, but I feel like you're you're getting towards the finish line. So we just did a, a podcast ourselves where we discuss the game and kind of what we liked and didn't like and all I think all four of us were pretty much in agreement that it's actually headed in a great direction that we had you know some minor quibbles to hash out over over the podcast but we're here to kind of see how you have been feeling about the game and really kind of get sort of a, a background story as to how development's gone and and so on and so forth so really I, I wanted to start off by asking you know what was the main I guess, what was the main objective when going into Galactic Civilizations 4? What were you trying to achieve with the fourth series of this venerated series? There were a couple problems with the genre, or just in, in particular with the Galactic Civilization games in the past that uh, we were trying to fix with Galactic Civilizations 4. Um, the big one was that uh, it's really hard to design any kind of strategy game that works at a small level. I have one planet and I have three ships and that feels good and fun. And there's enough detail um, to allow the player to make some really good decisions and feel like, you know, it's not boring, it's fulfilling, but then also have this work at this ridiculous scale of you have 300 planets and you have 200 different fleets of ships that may have, you know, six to eight ships in each fleet and how do I translate that, you know, it being fun and having enough detail at the small side and also working at the big? And Galactic Civilizations has always been about the big, you know, getting up to that place where you are managing and you feeling like I'm, I'm managing this big empire up there. But 
it became tedious in Galactic Civilizations 3 to, to have, you know, all these planets I'm managing and every turn I'm, I'm going through eight different planets and setting what their build orders are. Or I'm going through, you know, 20 different fleets and telling them, I want you to fly here now. Now I want you to fly here and I want you to fly here. And it just became overwhelming for the player. So the, the big impetus in the game was how can we grow and still have control over that vast scale that Galsiv is known for and still make it fun and engaging. So that was that was the key thing that we really wanted to do. And we addressed that through a couple different ways. I'll talk about one of them now and we can dig into other things, other ones later as well. But the, the big thing was changing it from controlling all of your planets directly to breaking planets into colonies and core worlds where colonies if you think of it from a civilization viewpoint you know there are cities that you build but you don't manage them at all they are just collecting the resources that are there available at that planet and they are sending that to the closest core world that they have so they become little feeder colonies for your real worlds and that way you can still manage 300 worlds in your growing empire and you can play these massive maps and you can zoom out and you can see this huge network of planets that you've created. But you're only personally managing, you know, 8, 12, 18 different worlds as your core world. So all of your little colonies are coming into your core worlds and at your core world is where you're making the decision around, you know what, I'm going to build some more research here. Or I'm going to put down this this huge factory on this world, or I'm going to hire a governor to take care of this. And this governor has some really good points, but he also has some bad points, but I'll deal with those bad points. And it made it so even as your world expanded and your civilization expanded, you were still able to to keep, you never got overwhelmed by all the details for it. What do you think? Um, I mean, you guys have played. Do you think that, that we've been successful at that? I really like it. I think that it's, it's it helps with immersion, Right. Like I think you were talking about like, you know, like when you start to play a game like this, you want to feel like you're in control, like this galactic empire just feels cooler if it's like this big sprawling empire. But I've always hated micromanagement. So I have always shied away from games that really tend to lean too much into it. And that's actually something I didn't really like about Galactic Civilizations 3 myself, because I didn't like having to like, you know, like you said, directly improve my development of every colony that I had. And so with this, I feel like, you know, having a few core worlds to focus my improvement efforts on and then having a bunch of colony, you know, feeder colonies, as you put it, you know, adding the resources to my core worlds, it feels like it, it, it creates this feeling of having a large empire without having, you know, that absurd level of micromanagement that I just cannot stand. So I think you guys nailed it. There was a... Uh the, the ability in Gauss of 3 to kind of let the AI run your planets for you. But a lot of players just, that was a step too far. Like, that's not fun. Like, they want, like if the game is telling me I can control these things, then I should control these things. And I don't want to just hand it over to the AI to control those pieces because then I feel like the AI is not doing it right. Or I'm, if it's not optimal, then I have to do this in order to be competitive at this game, or I'm going to lose the game, not because of any bad decision that I made, but because I was trying to play in a more fun way, which is not having to control all these planets, but now I'm going to lose because of that decision. So it was, uh, so this way we don't have that anymore. We've replaced that system with the colonies to make it so that, you know, the optimal strategy, the player still gets to stay in the player's hands. And we also changed some other things about the way they work too. Like we wanted to have combat earlier in the game, but in uh, Galsif 
one, two, or three world where all your planets are so valuable, you know, having an attack in turn 20 just never felt good to anybody. That rush strategy needed to be avoided. But with the colony core world breakdown, we can separate that out and say, hey, listen, you can attack colonies all you want, and you can grab that little feeder world because it's not a big deal in the large scope of the empire. I may have this little feeder world that I found. It's a little volcanic world. It has some uh, valuable minerals on it. But, you know, I don't want a bunch of people to live there. I'm never going to make it into one of my core worlds. It's just a nice little, uh, has some valuable minerals. It's feeding into my uh, main core world. And another player or an AI can see that little feeder world and, and early, early, early in the game can go send some military ships to grab it, to take control of it and start feeding those minerals back to their planet. And we can tussle about that and go back and forth and have these little skirmish wars that aren't affecting our core empire. But they do matter in the fact of, you know, I'm going to take these little bits and pieces away from you and I'm going to have battles over resources for a little while before we get to that second stage of the game where now we're really talking about loading up transports full of ships and we're having battles that are going to wipe me or you from the from the universe in these in these large wars so it was kind of a nice side effect of it as well yeah for me um at first i i didn't i didn't really get it at first but the more i i got into the system i actually sort of started to figure oh yeah this actually works really well because yeah like you said I just can't trust an AI to develop colonies for me. <laughs> so, yeah, I did come around to the system, but at first it was I was a bit thrown because I, I want to control it because I don't want the AI to think. But, you know, as you said, it, all they're doing is sort of feeding resources to your planet. So I kind of think of them as uh, fancy uh, asteroid pelts almost. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And we did have that concern that a lot of players, because we let the players choose what you want your core worlds to be and what you want your colonies to be. Um, so if you want to take your leaders, so you have a finite amount of leaders that you can hire and you can get through events and everything, and you want to take a bunch of your leaders and you want to put them on worlds to make them all core worlds, because that's what separates a colony from a core world, you can do that. And we were really worried that players like you would be putting lots and lots of leaders, and they would be managing all of these planets and it wouldn't be fun. But what we found in watching them play was, you know, they may start with that kind of mentality, especially Gaussiv 3 players that are very used to controlling every planet. But if we made the break between the really good planets and the kind of eh, crappy planets pretty substantial, they would pretty quickly realize that, you know what, that volcanic world with, you know, three minerals, that's a great little feeder world, but I don't want to put somebody on there. There's going to be, you know, five tiles that I can possibly develop there. There's not much I can do with it. So I'm going to save my leader for something else. And and uh, I was very happy to see that players aren't falling into that very often. They seem to go through the same process that you did. Yeah. To, to add to that, something which I think is interesting, if you look back on Gelsa 3, is that, of course, near... Uh, before we started working on Galaxy 4, we started to do stuff like the Commonwealths in Galaxy 3. And we already moved in that direction, but there were obviously issues with the AI and issues with like, well, it's a different design at that point. So I think some people have this idea of like, well, using kind of the same fundamental engine, yes, but it's been an entirely different design philosophy. So even though some things might seem similar from like a service level, the actual idea and the ground up design of Galaxy 4 is completely different. And as Derek says, built on the idea of like, how do we enable massive empires, these these civilizations which expand through star systems and sectors and entire galaxy without being punitive in the macro management you have to deal with as a player? 
Another thing I'd also point out, which I personally love about the design uh, with Dusty 4, is how we've done ideologies. So again, this is an idea that technically started in Gaza 3, but with Gaza 4, we have a much more in-depth policy system, ideologies, it's a whole gamut. And one of the things this enables us to do, and for most players, is that you still have races, you still have distinctions with how your starting civilization acts and feels, but... Um, depending on how you play and what you as a player prefer to do, what you find, etc., you can start to mold your civilization to play in an entirely different way, to have different strengths, different weaknesses. And that is something which you can do with any starting civilization because of the power of the ideology system. So those, I think, are kind of the two, to me personally, the two big things I think of when it comes to the fundamental, civ- uh, uh, fundamental shift with Galaxy 4's design is a combination of not punishing players with macro management when they get to at scale and also having that power of ideology and how adaptable even uh, simple humans become over the course of a game. And each game can be played very differently. And ideologies were such a... Uh, boy, we went through a lot of iteration on it. If I ask the team to do a new screen for the ideology screen again, they're going to murder me. Um, we started out with this really with this idea that there would be like four axes that you could. I'm, I'm sitting here moving my hands around as if anybody can see me on an audio podcast. Kind of like the yeah, kind of like the political compass test idea, but then we went to like the eight values and got more complicated from there. Yeah, yeah. It was first the the axis on the two axes and then we switched to you know there are seven different spectrums and if you gained like authoritarian you would lose liberty and you were measured along these spectrums but it was nearly impossible to communicate to players were so confused as to why did i lose compassion because i i select something or why didn't i get plus one on the cruelty spectrum or the pragmatic spectrum instead i got negative two on compassion spectrum what does that mean and realized no no that's the same spectrum you're just going up and down and it was just too much to explain and we tried to improve the ui and it never worked so we ended up where we are now which is a good place where they're all kind of separate monitors that you measure yourself on and, and i like to think of it like a it's a personality profile for the player like you go onto a website and you answer a bunch of questions and it tells you at the end of it this is who you are and i like that for the i always think of it that way when i'm looking at the spectrum of ideologies that by the end of the game you can look at them and say oh this is what i am i was very pragmatic in this game and i was i really pushed the creativity aspects and the authoritarian and and, and did it that way and next time i'm going to play the exact same civilization, but I'm really going to push into liberty and tradition and, and see where that gets me. But you run that Henry. Marvel personality test and you get Thanos. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to keep doing it until I get Wolverine, I tell you. <laughs> both of you make great points. And I spoke to both of these issues or both these points in the preview I wrote recently. And one of the things about the ideology tree and like, you know, the way you guys have made it so that you can sort of like, you know, like you said, personalize your empire is that it starts to feel like a role playing game, almost like you're role playing an empire and you're able to kind of pick traits and skills almost just like you would a role playing game. And I think that's really cool because it does allow you to take the humans each time, you know, in a different direction. And, you know, even though they have their own kind of, you know, like they have their own base level of strengths and, you know, maybe their play style is supposed to go a certain way, you can make them go a completely different way based on your ideology choices and stuff like that, which I love. And I think that was a fantastic idea. And I'd like to see it expanded too. But also another thing you guys had mentioned about, I think Derek, you mentioned that, you know, when you start to have these like skirmishes really early in the game and, 
you know, the territory starts to shift a bit. That's actually something I really like about Solaris. And I can't believe I'm saying that I like something about Solaris because personally, I'm not a very big fan of the game. Uh, we have a, a frequent debate here on the podcast about what Stellaris is and if anyone really likes it. But what I do like about Stellaris is that when you do go to war in Stellaris, now that you have possession of systems, the the territory shifts. And when you, you know, you start to like kind of, you know, kind of take claim of more and more of their systems, it feels rewarding. And that's what I like about Gauss F4 too, is that once you start these early skirmishes and you start to take some of their, you know, their feeder colonies, you're starting to just kind of, you know, like you're, you're slowly taking over their territory, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel like all out war. It feels like, you know, like you mentioned, skirmishes are like this, like prelude to maybe something worse, you know, maybe a bigger war later, or maybe you've, you know, kind of hamstrung them enough that it's no longer going to be an issue. And I, I just really genuinely like that about what, what the direction is going for in, in Gelsa 4. Yeah, you touched on one of the other big changes that we have in the game, which is multi-turn combat. Like these skirmishes wouldn't be possible in uh, Galsiv 1, 2, or 3 because all battles were finished in that turn. If you went to invade a world, you were either successful or you failed that turn. And it caused things to flip really quickly. But in Galsiv 4... Battles can take multiple turns to work out as the both fleets do damage to each other. And sieges of worlds, trying to invade worlds, always take multiple turns. And then the amount of turns it takes depends on uh, the resistance of that planet and the, the strength of the fleet that's attacking it. You always, and the, the big change of that is it always gives you time to either run away. Hey, listen, I'm getting beaten by this fleet, and I see that the Drengen are bringing more in. I'm going to pull back. I'm going to get back into my borders. I'm going to pull back to my home worlds and, and try to get some help or to reinforce. You know, hey, listen, I know that uh, I'm, I'm getting beat right now, but I have these you know three massive fleets that are on their way. They're going to be there in two turns, and they'll be there to help me. And when I'm attacking links and I have a somebody that's laying siege to one of my worlds, I see that on the main map. I see what's going on so that those tides of war that you're talking about there aren't instantaneous. But I'm looking at a large battle that I'm fighting with the Drenjin and I see they have they've laying siege to three of my worlds and I can look at each one of those and see what the status is on them. And, and I can you know see the little siege symbol on each of those worlds and those worlds will fall in time all invasions will succeed in Galsave. It's just the amount of time it will take. So I have to do something about it, uh, be that, you know, get some fleets over there and kill that invading fleet or declare peace. Uh, last thing I did with the Mimat, they were they were a turn away from taking one of my big worlds. And and I started giving them a lot of text to be like, OK, guys, back off. Let's let's end this. Is there anything I can do? Or, you know, I may have other yeah, attacks going on in their empire where, hey, listen, I know I'm going to lose a couple of these worlds here in the next couple of turns, but I have fleets moving into their core worlds. and I'm going to stab at the heart and I'm going to take what uh, a big piece in this war. So I'm, I'm willing to let some small things fall so that I can get bigger rewards. And that makes the war game a lot more interesting up at that strategic level when I'm watching it all play out, that it does take a couple turns for everything to happen. Since you started the uh, Galsiv 4, was there any like big changes that you sort of like realized, oh shit, this isn't working and you, you've come up with some new systems? Because I've only really started playing since just before beta 2, I think it was. 
I think the the ideology system, as I mentioned, has gone through a couple major changes that the original plan that we had for it just wasn't fun. I was really worried about the one of the changes we haven't talked about in the game, which is the break from an open map to clusters. I was worried that players would wouldn't like that very much or it wouldn't be fun. And I'm just super, super happy with how well that turned out. And we should talk a little bit more about that and what that adds. To the yeah, game. I really want to actually ask what was the idea behind that, actually, because I think it's quite new, really. I've not really seen that done to that extent, at least. I think Storice had something slightly similar in one of the expansions, but it's nowhere near as sort of something you set up from the start of the game almost. It's certainly not unusual for games to have solar systems connected by star lanes like Sins had or Stellaris has, where and you can travel between them. But those are just single... Um, solar systems right. with a couple with a couple planets and endless space have the same thing. The thing that's unusual in Galsip Four was these are effectively these are entire game maps that are connected together. So there may be um, sixty stars in this sector and you know two hundred planets and. That that is a game in and of itself. And while you're playing that game, and there's three other AI in that sector with you. And you're making alliances and going to war with them and playing out an entire game. Meanwhile, in other sectors, there's the same thing that's going on. There may be a sector that just has one AI by itself that's just growing and growing and growing and getting terrifying. There may be another one where there's three uh, civilizations that are fighting each other in a brutal war. In other words, two are have become allies with each other and are just helping each other out. And eventually, you will meet. They will come together through these subspace streams that connect the sectors. So it, it, I do think it is a new thing that you're able to kind of have these isolated games that open up in the early to mid game that allow these uh, civilizations to start connecting. And you often get a surprise where you're feeling like, hey, listen, I'm top dog. I fought hard. I have my the factions that I, all the civilizations that I know of around me uh, under control. And then Dringen warship comes through a subspace stream and you didn't even know the Dringen <laughs> existed. And you see, you know, armament on that ship that you have never seen before. And things get very, very scary. What I love about that, too, is that you guys have made it really easy in the options, the starting game options to either turn that off or to, you know, kind of I mean, just it's it's an easy I've mentioned again in the last podcast. It's an easy way to play it your way. Right. If you do enjoy having a sprawling game that has many different sectors and many different maps like you can do that. Or if you do want to play more like a Galactic Civilizations three game, you can just have one single huge map. And that for me goes a long way because there are days, times where I don't want to play, you know, a game that's going to last 30 hours. I want to play a game that I can get through in 10 hours and you guys have done a really good job of making sure the starting options, you know, ran the gamut of all those different possibilities. I'm, I'm glad you enjoy it. It is kind of a blessing and a curse on the game development side because we will get players that are that will complain about the AI not being tough enough. We had this happen a week or so ago where a player says, you know, the AI is just a pushover. Like, oh boy, you know, I when I play, boy, I, I'm just playing on normal difficulty and I'm having a hard time with it. And it really feels like the AI is doing a good job. Uh, so we get the information from the player. Okay, what are you doing? How are you setting up your game? And we find out, well, I, I in game settings, I set it so that I start in a sector all by myself but I overload the map with uh, AI players. So I put in as many AI players as I can, and then I say, I want a sector all to myself. So what ends up happening is you may have five different sectors in the game. All five, four of those sectors have like four or five 
sieves each in them, AI sieves in them each. So they're fighting for like, you know, six to eight decent planets each at, at most. Meanwhile, the human player has a sector all to himself with no challenge. So he has an easy 30 nice planets that he can just grow on and he can go out and he can be feeding into his production system and his research system and his economic system. So by the time that he meets with those players, since you can't travel across those subspace streams into the mid to early game, by the time they meet, uh, you know, he just decimates them. And from his perspective, he's like, Oh, you know, the AI isn't really great here. Like, well, you know, you kind of you kind of set it up to win. You put the game on easy mode with your gameplay settings. But uh, uh, I do, I, I'm definitely on your side of it, Rob, that at the end of the day, it's the player's game. And if he wants it to be easy, he should be able to play however he wants to play. And if he enjoys just going out and smashing the AI, that's totally cool. Um, just don't get mad at the AI developer for not having the AI be smart enough when he's so biased the game against the poor, poor AI. To that point, so what do you think have been the biggest challenges for you with regards to making this game? I mean, of course, when you have something that's given you so many different options and so many different ways to play it, what what are your biggest challenges so far of making Galactic Civilizations 4 feel unique and also, you know, work? Because <laughs> I, I know it's got to be a lot of work to make it work. Um, there's certainly the technical challenges of it, crashes and stuck turns and... The AI in Galsif 4 is quite a bit more complex than it has been in, uh, than it was in Galsif 3, and the complexity on the AI side translates to stuck turns. Um, the AI is thinking, the AI is planning, the AI is trying to do things, and the more the AI is doing, the more likely you're going to have two events that are triggering at the same time that both want to use a common resource. Um, so one's trying to move a ship and the other one is waiting for an attack order to happen before it's allowed to move the ship and, and these cause stuck turns. So all the, the more ping pong balls that you have shooting into the air, the more likely they're going to fly into each other. So there's all the technical challenges that have to happen, of course. The maps are huge compared to anything in Galsiv history. So um, that requires a better memory management system. So the developers are fantastic and they do a great job making that all work. I worry more about the design side because that's that's you know what what I think about every day. So it's really about is this fun? This sounded really good on paper, but once we start to really play with it, it doesn't feel really solid. Um, and for that, getting it out into early access into that early version in June of last year was really helpful to start getting feedback from the community and finding out that some of the things that we planned just didn't work out. The big thing for me was I really wanted to simplify the ships because I felt like it was overwhelming to new players to have all of these options. And the hardcore really liked it, but the hardcore would use those to make these kind of unbeatable ships and uh, make the game, uh, make the AI a pushover and the new players just wouldn't understand all the minutiae that was in there. So I tried to simplify them and through the early access program became to understand that the players should frequently be like, I want, this is what I'm attempting to do. So they would tell me, I want more options on my ships and be like, tell me what you're trying to do with your ships. And once they told me, once they explained to me exactly what they wanted to do that they'd done in Galsif 2 and to Galsif 3 that they really enjoyed, I'm like, okay, that makes sense. So I've, I've switched that system and gone back more towards the Galsif 3 model of ship customization because that's what players like to do. And I can, I, I can absolutely understand that. The other big one was the citizen system. Like, I really love the citizens in the game. I like looking at my planets, and I like that your population is made up of specific 
is represented by specific individuals and specific uh, species. So when I look on a planet, I see, oh, there's a Festrune living on this planet uh, of my of four humans. That's not going to work out well for the humans because eventually the Festrune will murder them. <laughs> Or I, I look at a planet and I say, okay, there's a bunch of your that are, I've captured a bunch of your worlds. And now I have a bunch of your citizens that are working on those worlds and your don't require any food, but they also don't uh, reproduce. So I don't, those planets aren't going to be growing anymore unless I get some organic people to uh, move to those planets and, and start to breed and, and grow. Um, but each species that I have there kind of introduces its new challenges. They have their own likes and dislikes. The Festrin, for example, love to live on oceanic worlds. Some of the species don't like other species on their planets. They want it to be all their their species. Um, some have a particular species that they hate. The Iridium love to live in wealthy civilization. So the amount of uh, credits that you have in your treasury really matters to them. And if that's really high, they're going to be happy citizens. And if that's really low, they're going to be pretty unhappy with you. Um, so they, they kind of, each species has its own issues and dealing with them and making sure that they keep happy. And I love that side of it. The part I, I didn't think worked out very well was being able to specialize them and making this guy into a farmer and that guy into a scientist and this guy into a entrepreneur. It felt like this additional level of minutia that was kind of redundant with the district system that we have in the game where I, I decide plots of land are going to be industrial districts or recreational districts or housing districts. And, and that felt really good to me. And that worked out really well. And actually, I like it a lot more than I initially thought when it was proposed. But the citizen specializations always felt a little weak to me. And I don't feel like it's quite lived up to the promise that we initially had. Yeah, I do want to come back to some of the asymmetry that you're talking about with the races. But before I do that, I want, wanted to kind of come to Henry for a second because you, you're talking about beta and how, or I guess the early access period and how it's really helped shape the game. And really, I I know that it, there's there's like a core group that I've seen through every Stardock game really that have been very, very passionate about helping you guys. And Henry, I'm curious to know, like, how has it been for you? I know that like, you know, you're constantly working on getting what's called sit reps together and, you know, you're compiling all this massive amount of feedback really. And so how has that been for you trying to kind of parse through that to figure out what it is that you can pass on? I mean, I imagine that you're not passing on every single thing because, you know, some things are just not in the scope, but like, what has that been like for you? I could sort of relate this also to some of the parts of the question last time about what may have been worrisome going into this, because usually through most of the games we've had, have had what we call the Founders Program, which is where people can get in early, but it's a specific, though, program which is designed just for a select number of people. And they usually get a couple of other like, extras uh, because of that. Uh, and it's usually like, in some cases, it's like a, a large amount of money to get like the Lifetime Founders, which includes all DLC and stuff like that. For this game, we didn't do any of that. And there was a concern about uh, how we're going to do also feedback with it because also being on Steam, which usually have a lot of people very uh, eager to share their opinions one way or another on Steam, uh, whereas for this, we only had the forums and Discord pretty much. I mean, technically, there are also people that can, you know, respond on Facebook and Twitter and places, but basically everything we were getting is through uh, two primary channels which we of course uh, maintain with everything i think with each game we try different things and we try to um get better uh for this one it was the first time we're doing what we call situation reported or sit reps which is basically a way of like hey uh here's a dedicated channel here's like a dedicated feedback thread we generally trust our veterans 
uh, as you mentioned, that group of people and people who have been given feedback for a while to, hey, we know that you know how our game works or mostly works. Uh, give us feedback which is actionable. Tell us what is what is not fun, what is fun, what is broken. Give us, you know, save games. Give us all this stuff, etc. And it took some growing pains, I think, to it. But the result has been... Uh, well, I think uh, Derek can say as well, but I think um, I'm generally I'm very happy with what people have been able to to work with us and getting that feedback in and been able to get that directly to the team whereby hey, here's a list of things. And we've posted the syllabus a couple of times as well. Uh, if you've seen them, it's a very simple just list going through things, anything which is relevant, where it's a screenshot or an error log or a save game, it's linked. It also uh, transpired in the time when Discord was adding a couple of new features, including threads. Uh, we don't use threads as much as we initially thought we would, but they have been useful for some things whereby we can archive entire channel and be like, hey, if our devs need to go in there and like talk about a specific issue or like find out what's going on here, they can go into a thread, which is um, much less messy than, no- than normally what you get with, the- with IRC-like chats. So yeah, I-, I think that overall I'm happy with how that has, has uh, progressed. I'm definitely very happy and... I would say proud and fair of uh, our community because genuinely this has been some of the, I think the best iteration we've had going back and forth between both the team and the community with anything being uh, too messy or in some cases it can get nasty with some people. But in this case, it's been very, very positive. And I think this is, this is a, uh, a new methodology which we'll be using for every game going forward. Yeah, it's been super helpful for me, certainly. And there is no doubt that Gaussive 4 is going to be so much better on release because of the input from the MVP community. Uh, they've been fantastic. And even though I'll get these set rep reports from Henry, and I appreciate him putting them all together because there are a lot of information, a lot of people posting about the game in a lot of places. And, and it's nice to be able to have that consolidated where I can go through it, see it, and then jump up and walk around you know, the office for... 15 minutes like oh my gosh how could they want this thing it's so much better and then realize oh no i understand what they want they're totally right i should go do that thing like the sandbox play and multiplayer like i was pretty insistent that sandbox multiplayer and turn-based 4x games is just miserable a lot of the times you're taking a long time and a lot of turns and a lot of time you know i'm waiting five minutes for the other person to take their turn and and doing all this kind of stuff and having to deal with all the complexity of it and it would be so we could solve that problem by making some changes to multi the way that uh, multiplayer ha- happens so we put in arena mode where you just you, you have a uh, agenda or you have agenda mode where you have a specific goal that you have to get to be able to win the game and arena mode where it's just you against another human in a small map and you just you know the, the last man standing is the one who wins and we put in a survival mode where all the AIs are allied against the human players and the human players can help each other out. But the whole goal is you will die because the AI is getting more and more and more bonuses over time. They will kill you, but the person who lives the longest is the one who wins. I'm like, okay, this is a better way to do it where you can keep your turn times really tight and you can keep going back and forth between you and action keeps happening. And we put it out and the first thing players wanted was the big sandbox mode. We want exactly what the the single player version of the game is. We just want to be able to do it with a friend. And uh, there's a part of me and my soul that's like, no, that sounds horrible. But hey, again, just like you said earlier, Rob, if that's the way it's their game and if that's the way they want to play it, then we're putting sandbox mode in for the uh, next update so players will have it. Excellent. That's great to hear. 
I mean, yeah, like you said, is if they want to play it, let them have it. It's not my cup of tea, but hey, go for it. And so I want to come back to the asymmetry because, like, you started to sp- speak about how the like, different races see things and interact, and like maybe interact with their populations and stuff like that. And I've noticed that Galactic Civilizations Four has really leaned into asymmetric gameplay, and you, you've kind of and I, I love this, so don't take this offensively, but I it's almost like balance be damned, right? You've you've just said these races are going to play differently and we're not going to care too much about whether or not one of them is a little OP or too strong. It's, you know, it's just fun to have them be very different and, and also, you know, utilize the maps and utilize their abilities differently and, and play to those strengths. Is that something you intentionally did or was that like something to just sort of kind of glean out through like the commander ships and stuff like that? And you've leaned into them at this point. I started way, way back by making a mod called Fall from Heaven for Civilization Four that was all about faction differentiation. It was about how crazy can we be with each of these factions to make them different from each other. And just like you said, balance be damned. It's, it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's totally fine if in nine out of ten games, this is the AI faction that wins. If it is fun. So fun is much more important than that. We try to put some controls around it. We try to view those things and to make it reasonable so that the the games just don't become predictable, right? So we do look at the balance side of it too, but yeah, I'm I'm with you. Anything we can do to make it feel different is great. I had a big game that I played as the Zaloxi over three days earlier this week. And the Zaloxi are like every member of the Zaloxi civilization is a criminal. Everyone is a criminal. Um, they're bringing crime in. They are trouble. It is you're basically playing as like job of the hut as a civilization, right? They're they're just nobody is any good. And in playing with them, certainly dealing with the high crime everywhere, crime affects numerous things, including making your people unhappy and be, you're being able to make money on your worlds with high crime is a problem. And I didn't want to just make them immune to those problems. Like they should feel like, yes, I am running a civilization that has massive amounts of crime in it. That's what the Zaloxi are. But here are some other bonuses that I get in other areas that may still make this workable. And I still think, and I did make lots of balance changes to try to make that work. And I cut off features from them, like being able to imprison their citizens. They can't do that. Like everybody is a criminal. We have to accept that you are a criminal civilization. Everybody is a criminal. You can't throw people in jail. Uh, That's that's not what the Zaloxi do. It didn't feel right for them. But giving them bonuses in other areas, so they still felt competitive. But even at the end of the day, just like you said, they felt like I was running a criminal empire. But it's hard. Like I, we've talked a couple times about putting a couple disclaimers on a couple of the civilizations to say, "Hey, listen, if you're new to the game, this is a difficult civilization. The Navigators are a hard civilization to play as. The Zaloxi are a hard civilization to play as. The Navigators start with a horrible world. They're a spacefaring species." And they, their starting world is is horrible, but they get a couple bonus colony ships to try to go find something else. And if they go find some good planets, they may be okay. But it's definitely challenging, for especially for new players. But I like the fact that it is a, a unique challenge that when I play as them, my game was different and my story was different. That's really what I'm looking for. So how much can we expect in terms of um, asymmetry between the races going forwards? Are they going to have like more race-specific techs? Or more races having features or ways to play? So there's a couple pieces to that. There's a lot of ways at a civilization level. When we talk about races, we're typically talking about civilizations. 
Um, and we want to make sure every civilization is as different as possible. One of the things that I put in for the Torians last week, and it hasn't gone out to into the beta yet, is all of their command ships are all survey ships. Survey ships that are command ships are awesome because they get XP fast, and command ships, when they go up a level, can get upgrades on them. So having every one of their command ships... Oh, I'm sorry, it's not, it wasn't the Torians that did it with, it was the Manti. Having them all survey ships felt really strong and really powerful and really unique. So at the civilization level, we try to look for all of those things that you can do to make them feel like a different play experience. So you take the civilization you're playing as, and then you do what Henry was talking about earlier. And then you say, I have the additional customization of the ideologies where I'm playing the Manti this game, but I'm going to play them as very libertarian, very compassionate, very creative ideologies. And that gives me a whole range of different bonuses than if I was playing them as authoritarian, very focused, very uh, opportunistic uh, it would be a whole realm of different bonuses that they get. So it makes those experiences feel different. And so that's on the civilization side of the kind of faction differentiation that you see. And there's another side in the game when you talk about species differentiation, which is just about the individual characters that are in your empire, the citizens and the leaders. So the bear attack are, for example, they're a, a plant species. And for them, each of their citizens uh, is very susceptible to the amount of pollution on your worlds. So if you see a world out there that's volcanic or bombarded, you see those kind of planets out there and they have massive amounts of pollution, like the bear attack are going to look at those and think, oh, you know, I'm going to stay away. Like those are going to be really, really, my people aren't going to be happy there. My growth rate's going to be destroyed there. It's really going to be hard to grow those worlds up. Um, so there's different things that I have to do. And the reason that we like it at the citizen level at the unit level of the game is because just because I'm playing the bear attack civilization doesn't mean that I have all bear attack citizens at the beginning of the game. Yes, I will. And I'll have all bear attack in my empire. But as I go out and I, I have events happen where I might meet some festroon that may want to join me or I conquer, you know, I may be a very libertarian bear attack civilization and everybody's happy and I'm, I'm doing libertarian policies and my citizens tend to be very libertarian because each of your leaders and each of your citizens can also have ideologies and their ideology is based on the ideology of your civilization as well as the ideology of other people that are on their worlds and the ideology of the governor of the world all influences a citizen and helps them decide what ideology they will have and they may be very libertarian and my civilization might be very libertarian and everybody's happy but then i conquer four dringent planets and the dringent may be very authoritarian the citizens may be very authoritarian so now I'm dealing with this mix where I have a bunch of Dringen on my planets and those Dringen citizens hate me because I'm at war with their home world, with their home species, and they're authoritarian and I'm libertarian, so they hate me for that too. So I have all these issues that I have to deal with. And like I, like I was saying earlier, I may take over some of your worlds and they don't need food and they have other things that they're looking for. So you get, kind of get this push of dealing with a very homogenous or unhomogenous uh, kind of empire that is kind of tells you a story when I look at these planets. Oh, these are my Drenjin worlds. That's right. You know, 250 turns ago, I went to war with the Drenjin Empire and I conquered them and this is what is left and there are the Drenjin citizens and this is what they are today and they've changed over time and they were, I remember that they were a really angry group of very authoritarian war minded citizens and now 250 turns later they've been welcomed into my manti civilization 
I've defeated the Dringen entirely. They've completely, you know, come into, you know, my civilization and they're very libertarian. And these are a kinder, more compassionate Dringen because, you know, of, of what has happened over the story of the game. And the game itself kind of tells the story through each of these citizens, which I really like. Yeah, I like that too a lot. And it's something that I really genuinely appreciate about the game. And something I wanted to come back to because you mentioned, you know, we were talking about balancing and how that cannot be fun sometimes. And I wanted to ask because I think, you know, as a Forex developer, when when it comes to making a Forex game fun, what do you think are like the key elements of of doing that? I mean, how do you keep the player engaged and how do you keep the game fun throughout the entire? I mean, like the Forex game is a long game, right? Like, like I said, I think even a short game will take you at least five, six hours if it's a quick, quick game. And what what do you think is the key aspect or what are the key aspects of making a Forex game fun that that entire time? We have a secret weapon. Uh, it's Brad Wardell. Brad is uh, has this in his blood. He has an amazing superpower to sit down and play a forex game for four hours, make a, a massive amount of tweaks. But they're not major tweaks. They're just these little number changes that happen throughout it that will really kind of bring it together and get that balance right. Um, because as we frequently say here in a in one of these sort of games, in a strategy game. One number being wrong, a two being a five can ruin the entire experience and can make the game entirely worthless, uh, just not fun at all. And you get that number back to where it should be and suddenly everything starts to feel together. Uh, but to answer your question, the concept is that there's a, a reinforcement strategy that happens in a game. And that requires that the player be able to have something that's coming and happening on a regular interval that they can expect. And in typical games, you know, typical when you talk about this, there would be one thing that's coming up. So in three turns, you get this thing. Let's take text, for example. In three turns, I'm going to get a new tech. All right, great. And then seven turns after that, you get another tech. And there's some magic around how long these things have to ha happen, how frequently these things have to happen to keep the player engaged. But step one is just having that reinforcement strategy where I know that the, this thing is coming and I'm going to get it if I play a couple more turns. And then you also have to make sure the player can see it coming. You have no idea how important that tech research bar is on the main screen of the game where you can see progress, that progress bar moving between turns. It's incredibly important to keeping the player engaged. But that's really only one method, the tech is only one method to doing that, and it's not even the biggest one. Once you start to line up multiple reinforcement strategies, you start to have, all right, and this planet is going to finish its improvement, and this shipyard is going to finish the ship, and my survey ship will get to that survey that I want to check out in three turns, and my transport will get to that world that I'm going to attack in five turns and that siege is going to be over in seven turns. And once you start to lay out multiple reinforcement strategies so the player can see, oh my gosh, yep, uh, just just one more turn, you know, as Sid Meier famously said, you know, just give me that this give me the one more turn because you can see all the things that are coming up. I'm going to turn this game, I'm going to save this game and I'm going to log out and I'm going to go to bed as soon as I capture this one last Drenjin world and then I swear I, I will be done with this. It's already two hours past the time I should have went to bed. And by the time you get that drenching world, then it's, well, you know, I have this huge warship that I'm just about ready to put onto the, just about ready to come out of my shipyard. And then I'm going to crush that enemy fleet. As soon as I do that, then then I'm going to bed. I swear it. Uh, and that's, so that's really the magic of kind of making these games work is to allow the player to have that feedback that those new systems that are coming online and allowing him to see that and to know that up, 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 just in a couple more turns, you're going to get that. And then you can go play with your new toy. 
I think one thing with Forex uh, games is a long time Forex player is you kind of know you're going to win. And it almost feels sometimes like you get to a certain stage of your game, you know you're going to win. And it just, it feels like it's going to be a, just a clean up. It's going to just be a slog really to finish games. So a lot of times I just start a new game. But I found what you guys added, I think this might be a Brad thing, but because I've noticed his name's involved with some of them, is you've actually got ch- challenges in the game where you can sort of just press a button and suddenly like a weird alien race sort of comes out of nowhere and attacks you and sort of gives a, a nice sort of end game challenge to the player. What what was the idea of that? And was this to sort of fix this sort of problem where you know you're strong enough to beat, you just it's just going to be a slog to actually finish a game? I was a design consultant on Civilization V, and one of the the big secrets I got to hear from Firaxis, who are just amazingly talented, wonderful people, was they said, oh, nobody really finishes a game of Civilization. I thought... That's craziness. I thought everybody finished their games and just not me. Like I never finished my games because I did exactly what you just described. I played the, the exploration. I, I met the other civilizations. I, I got to a place where I, th- I knew I had this game won. And then I started a new game. And Firaxis told me, oh, yeah, that's what everybody does. Like, oh, you, I feel like I just looked behind the, the curtains. Um, but to fix that, one of the big changes we wanted to make early on in Galactic Civilization Four was to uh, have a prestige system in there. So a prestige system gives you points in a variety of areas, the most population, the most technologically advanced, the most military advanced, the most money, all of these categories that you get points for. And you can both see your percentage of prestige and getting to zero to 1,000, getting to the point where you have to win. And then you can also see the highest ranked player uh, that's in your game. So you can see, hey, listen, I'm at... 13%, 13%, but oh my gosh, the Drengen, I, I was just picking on the Drengen for this entire call. The Drengen are at 26%. I have to do something about them or they're going to win on a prestige victory. But the whole point for the prestige victory is to do exactly what you said, to get it to a place where a player has already won. They've Because you can't do it just by tech, and you can't do it just by money, and you can't do it just by military. You have to get enough points in in multiple areas to get up to that 1,000 because they're all capped at a certain uh, max amount. So if you have gotten highest, you've gotten enough in multiple areas to get up to 1,000 prestige, then it's basically saying, hey, listen, you have this game won. Um, do you want to keep playing or not? But I'm going to give you a nice, satisfying, yes, you you have won. You accomplished what you're supposed to accomplish. That feels better than just, you know what? I know I could slog through this for another three hours, but I don't really want to. So you could say, yes, I won. If you want to keep playing, you can always keep playing. Uh, but it gives you both something to celebrate as you as a player if you do it, and also something to watch for when the other players, the AI players, start to get up that chain as well and to try to knock them down. Because you can look and say, yeah, they're doing really good because of their population. Look how many planets they have. I should grab a couple of those and get some of those points in my column instead of theirs. And after we had that prestige system in, which was enabled specifically to fix the problem that you just described, the next thing was, all right, well, we had this idea of these galactic challenges that we want to have, which were really kind of narrative events. So instead of having a campaign in Galsiv 4, what we really wanted to have is, you know, the player can trigger off these narrative events that can happen and can make something crazy happen in their game and they can deal with it. But we wanted it to be in the player's hands. I didn't want a player to be playing a really good game 
and he's he's battling the Drenjin, and he's really on the edge trying to get this war to happen, you know, to, to survive this war. And then, boom, you know, all of these dreadlords start to to flood in from another dimension, and his game is over because of a random roll of the dice. So instead, we said, okay, player, you're in control of it. Here are all the challenges that you can have out there, and some of them are like you know, build this wonder. So if you do this, then it unlocks the wonder for all the players in the game. And the first player that finishes it gets some prestige for doing it. Or some of them are a lot more in your face, like opening a rift to another dimension and let's see what in the world comes through there. Or some may start a quest event for you to go out and find the orb of dragon all. And then once you find the orb of dragon all, like you find some evidence of it and then you, you use it to uh, set off an artifact power and that artifact power may be good or bad. And then the orb of dragon all is actually on a planet that one of your enemies has, and it's getting massive bonuses from it. So you have to go take that planet if you want to capture um, the orb and finish this galactic challenge. So those made for fun narrative events for the player, and they also fed into the prestige system. So it gave you a way for, you know what, the Drenchen are doing really good. They're beating me on prestige. Maybe I better start attempting some of these galactic challenges in this game so I can get some prestige on my side if I complete them first and I have a way to compete. Um, It worked out well for that, too. Going back to what you were saying about what Brad does and how he... You know, he plays the game for a few hours and makes some choice, like some small tweaks to the game, and the you know the game suddenly becomes better. He's something that really kind of stuck out to me, and it's 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 I maybe it's particular to me, and I don't know, maybe a, a small subset of forex gamers, or maybe all of them like it. I don't know, but he went back and started to add a lot of flavor text, and so that's something for me that just really draws me into a game. It, it makes me feel a lot more immersed. So that if I'm going to the Festron and they're talking about like laying eggs and all of my people. That it just—it sounds like something the Festron would say, but B, it just—it starts to kind of make me feel like I am, like you know, I've, I've brought the Festron up on my screen, right, and and we're having this like diplomatic exchange, and they're not exactly nice, you know, and they would say something like, even though we're having this trade agreement and we're agreeing to, you know, trade off Durantium for some some credits, they're also clearly very very interested in making sure that they know that I'm there. They want to eat me. So those kind of things I think are great. And I really like that. I love that Brad's gone through and added all that stuff because it just really helps me feel involved and engaged. But to your point too, about the achievements and I guess they're challenges, right? They're called galactic challenges. Am I right? Yes. So we actually discussed that a bit with our podcast and we are kind of split on this, and I personally feel like I liked it a lot, right? I like the idea. I like the. It does feel a little gamey, right? Like so, it feels like, it, you know, once you give the player the choice as to when to take these on, it starts to feel a bit more, you know, like I said, gamey. I guess the best word I could put it. It just it starts to kind of take the immersion out of it a little bit. However, I like the the fact that you can, like you said, you know, th- these random dice rolls aren't going to screw you when you're you know at this like you know really really like heated battle with you know the festron i'm going to say the festron instead of the dungeon and but i also could see the other side of it where some of the other panel members were saying that they wish they felt that, or that they wish these achievements and these events were a little bit more organic you know maybe where you were meeting certain criteria within a game right maybe you are the top dog and maybe you are the top dog by a long shot so the game sees that and they start sending they they send you know all the invasion fleets ever, you know from from everywhere um where they you know that one event where the invasion fleets come from 
another dimension and stuff like that. You know, there was also a good point to that. I mean, what do you think about that? With I know that there has to be a, a pretty difficult design decision f- for you to to figure out whether or not the player needs to have all the control over that, or maybe there could be some events where the 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 process of which would feel a little bit more organic. Uh, so first of all, uh, your comment about the flavor text. Yeah, that is all that is 100 percent Brad. He is so good at it. Uh, he loves doing it. There is nobody who knows the lore. Of course, Brad created all the lore of Galsiv, So he is the lore master of Galsiv forever. So, yeah, he can jump in there and make those little snarky comments. And every once in a while, he'll come over and he'll say, like, I checked in some comments. You may want to read them before they go out because uh, we may offend people. And I'm always I'm the worst person to do that with because I'm always like, let's put it out. This is hilarious. Yeah, somebody will be offended, but it's so funny. Um, and then we usually marketing we uh, probably reads it goes mm, that's probably a bad idea um uh, but uh, but yeah he is so good at it and i me too i'm the same way i chuckle when i see that he puts some new flavor text in and uh, love seeing that go into the game but for the galactic achievements <clears throat> i think we do both i think that galactic achievements are gamey and we did have a talk about that and i i don't honestly know what the right answer there is you're absolutely right. It does feel gamey to be able to go into this and be able to, you know, trigger this thing to happen. But we also do have lots of events in the game that naturally occur and can come up. In fact, one of the things I've been working on today and yesterday was events that come up based on the specifics of leaders. So leaders have their back, their history. They have their own things that have happened to them before you recruit them. And that can start to play out now. And events can come up based on those histories and the leaders could come to you or other people could come to you about them and kind of have a story start to develop around each of these people that are in your game. There is an event that can happen in your game where another civilization has is threatening to open up a hole to another dimension and have dreadlords come in, and you get to decide how you res- you will respond to it. That is not in a galactic challenge, but you can act right then and stop it, or you can let it go and let it happen. So, so those kind of events can happen in the game. So we don't want to give up the narrative side of the game. But that doesn't really take away from the fact that I can understand how somebody actually going into the Galactic Challenges screen can feel like I feel like I'm in a game setup screen now. And that's kind of taking me out of the immersion side of of what's actually happening. And maybe it would be better from an immersion perspective to not have it be so cut and dry and just say, hey, listen, here's 12 galactic achievements that you can pick right now. Instead, have it be, you know, here's mysteries that your leaders want to research and you want to dig into. Like they've they've heard rumors of this and they've heard rumors of that. Do you want to assign people to go follow up on that rumor? And that's what starts it. But it feels a little more integrated into the, the narrative of the game instead of being almost going out to a game setup screen and saying, I want to choose Choose A, B, and E off of this list. Now go. Now I've modified my game in real time. That's great to hear. Honestly, I think that it'd be great. I mean, first of all, I love the idea of having because I've I've seen the kind of like the flavor text too of the leaders, and so they have like these like small little backstory blurbs, and it would be cool to see more events related to them, and you know more involvement from those leaders. So I'm really excited to see that. And you know, I'm I'm curious too because well, first of all, I have. I since I have you on the phone here and I'm, <laughs> I might as well make my plea. I know that Henry and I are very much in favor of space dolphins. So I don't know. Who oh, God, here we go. 
<laughs> it's been something I've literally been talking. Like every time you guys do a Q and A, I'm like, space dolphins win, and I, you know, I, I have this like thing for aquatic races, and I love the Festron and the Manti or Manti are both our aquatic races, which I love a lot. But you know, some like if I go back in like my forex history, like when I think of like the Lear and you know some of these other like really awesome aquatic races, I just have always really enjoyed them. You know, like in Stars and Shadow, there's a there's basically like star seahorses that I really, really like. So, um, yeah, no. So if I could, you know, I don't know who I need to send my check to, but we could just make space. Thing. It would be a big check. Making a new civilization is a, a long process. And um, especially at the quality bar that the cinematic team has done. I mean, I'm just so impressed every time the cinematic team shows some art or some movie that we put into the game or these leaders that you get to see, oh my gosh, they do such a great job of it. But uh, it is not a trivial task to get done, certainly. Have you, did you, do you remember Star Drive? Do you remember that game from forever ago? Yeah, absolutely. It had the samurai bears in it. And we used to, here at Stardock, we used to argue about the samurai bears because half of the studio, would be, mostly artists, would be like, that's ridiculous. Why would you have samurai grizzly bears literally driving spaceships? That's, that's such a crazy thing. It's so dumb. And the other half of the studio, of which I was a member, was always like, that is awesome. I totally <laughs> want to play as the samurai bears. I have to say the artwork and the animations of the... Uh Races is absolutely top notch. I think it's probably the best I've seen in any 4X game. Next I've, level. I've, yeah. Yeah. It's like absolutely crazy. Yeah. Some of the little cinematic movies that come up to the team did a really good job on that as well. Just beautiful work. And uh, in beta three, what you're going to see is whenever you're on the planet screen, rather than just using that same kind of uh, movie that's playing in the background, just kind of the, the dark shadowed planet, like the planet is going to be the planet trait that it is. So if you're looking at an arboreal world, you're going to see an arboreal world and they are so absolutely gorgeous. You see a volcanic planet back there in the background. And every time I get one from the cinematic team and check it in, I'm just like, yep, yep. This is this absolutely beautiful work so so i'm so happy to have the game be able to showcase that great work well we're running out of time so i have a couple quick questions and then i'm hoping you can let us in on a little secret here but we'll, we'll ask that in a second I, I imagine that the the epic deal and i know you this is more of a ceo question but like i imagine the epic deal this guy has given you the ability to do some of this stuff more right like you guys have had the like your art team has been fantastic and i and i think that something i mentioned to you and and in previous preview articles and podcasts is that I, you guys have really kind of started to hone in your skill as a team with star control and and now you know moving into galactic civilizations for it seems like your animation team is just you know like we said it's it's triple a it's crazy and i'm curious to know how much of that is the epic deal i know that like the money from getting like kind of like that that like you know infusion of of extra funds probably helps you you know hire the right people and get the right people behind them and, and make the game better what do you think I would say that the magic is just having the right people and giving them the time to do the work. Stardock is a little different than most game companies because we're a small studio, but we aren't all dedicated to one project at the same time. Uh, there's lots of things that are going on here. So the nice thing about that is a lot of companies will hire and fire like they staff up for one game. And then when they get to the place where, you know, that they don't need those people anymore, they're not in the middle of production, then they start to let people go. And we don't do that. And we don't we, we get away with not doing that because we always have multiple projects that they can work on. So people bounce back and forth between them um, for Galsiv 4. The nice thing is that 
you know, we knew we had an audience out there. We know if we make a good game, you know, it's going to uh, do very well. So we had the confidence to be able to say, all right, so we feel comfortable committing X amount of resources to it and giving those guys the times to do their job very well. And I, you're seeing the benefits of that. But but really, re- regardless of all the business side stuff you're seeing, what you're really seeing is just phenomenally talented people that are being able to get, get the time to do what they do well. And it's it's amazing. It's also worth saying that Galsiv is in Stardock's blood. This isn't a new IP. This isn't the first time that we've made this game. And because of that, like we know what we're looking for. We didn't need to spend six months going back and forth on an art style. Or, yeah, that looks a little too cartoony. Or that looks a little too realistic. You know, we knew exactly what that bullseye looked like from the get-go because it's in our blood and the cinematic team could just right from the start be okay i got it we went back and forth on some concepts for each of the races with brad um where he could say yes nope i don't like that i like that you know something more in this area but that was very quick to move with people that have worked with brad for over a decade so you know that there isn't a lot of wasted effort there and once they'd nailed down what you know kind of what brad's thought was what he was looking for from a lore perspective they could deliver assets like you're seeing and that worked out fantastic before we start wrap things up i do want to take a time the moment to to thank you guys both for being here i i think it's really awesome it's something about Stardock that i've always really really loved is how close you are with your community so i mean as a community lead i really appreciate your role there at Stardock, henry thank you for doing all that you do it's been i'm sure it's been stressful at times but you've been always a really good sport about it so thanks for everything you do that's no problem uh honestly when it comes to our community communities i tend to see them as multiple communities at this point we're pretty fortunate like i i see like over the wall sometimes with some of the games and their communities like some of the more shall we say difficult people we've had to deal with have actually been people who've jumped from other communities to ours so by and large the people we have to deal with and and actually get a really good, again, really good feedback from, from folks with the with that form in particular are very, you know, uh, friendly, very productive. We don't really deal with uh, some of the same problems that others do. So I consider myself very fortunate in that. It is still somewhat stressful, but uh, honestly, like a big part of that is the people we have. Yeah, it's great stuff. I'm I'm actually really proud to be a part of the startup community. I think First of all, you guys just do a great job of handling it. And B, it's, it seems like it's like a really mature group, so I love it. But before we move on and before we finish this off, I do want to ask Derek if he could tell us maybe maybe a little bit about what's coming next before version 1.0. Like, What do you have in the pipeline now that you're you're edging towards the finish line? So we talked a little bit... <laughs> <laughs> and we talked a little bit about the leader-based events that are going to be coming in. Um, but the, the big things that we're in the sandbox mode that's going to be in multiplayer for it, so that will be good as well. Uh, the two big things that we're working on are civilization customization, so make your own civilization from scratch, and the modding aspects of the game. So being able to create and share content with other players are both getting a lot of uh, attention right now. We're also working on improving the Battle Viewer too, so you get more information there and it's more useful to you. But those are lots of lots of little things. But the big content side civilization customization modding uh and the leader events are going to be uh add a lot to the game so before you go i want to ask a cheeky question if you don't mind go for it when uh gc4 gets to version 1.0 will you start work on uh falling enchantress legendary heroes too 
<laughs> um, it's so funny because Brad keeps coming to me and asking me, okay, what are you, you going to do after Galsiv? What do you want to work on next? And I keep telling him, just let me get this game out the door. <laughs> and I'm trying to think about that. So I don't need a second person asking me the question. Oh so right now, I just want Galsiv to be amazing and I want to get it out and get it released. And then, of course, spend some time on it after release to make sure, you know, patches and updates and it's fun and there'll be some attention there. And then after we get through all that, I'm going to sleep for a week and then I'll start thinking <laughs> about next projects. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised you asked that. I was actually going to see, I was going to be a little more cheekier and ask about a Fall from Heaven standalone game, but oh <laughs> man, I, one can dream, right? But hey, gentlemen, it's been really great. I really appreciate you guys taking the time out of your day to come in here and talk to us forest nerds. And I know a lot of people are going to appreciate the insight that we've been given today and kind of just having a good good sense of like how the design decisions were made and you know, kind of where things are going. So I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for being here, Derek. Thank you. And thank you again, Henry, for everything and for being here. Thank you. This was Rob, Drexy, Derek, and Henry for Explominates. And until next time, keep exploring.